Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So for today's episode, I'm going to start off with some good news and some not so good news. So the good news is that there have been some really interesting fraud news stories this week. Uh, a couple of pretty funny ones, uh, still informational, but will probably make you chuckle. Uh, and a couple that are not as funny, uh, but are important for you to know. So I'm going to alternate from entertaining to educational. Uh, the first one, I'll read the headline. Uh, this story was broken by the number one journalist in online fraud, Frank McKenna, on his very well-known blog, Frank on Fraud. And his title is Lookup Bot, which is in quotation marks, on Telegram, may have copied about fraud's tagline. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, the second story, the headline is Chinese scammers are hiring domain experts to develop new flawless scams. Uh, the third story is about a plastic surgeon whose entire database of a couple of thousand uh, clients was breached, including... Uh, their before and after pictures where they're not wearing clothing. Um, and now it's actually led to fraud as well, payment fraud and scams. Uh, and then the fourth story is about a new Visa card that is bragging in their marketing that they have no KYC, no know your customer standards. A couple of you have texted this to me or emailed this to me this week, so I know it's top of mind. And I found a really good article that explains it in full detail and I'm that's all I'm gonna say for right now I'm not gonna spoil the uh the punchline so to speak or uh, provide my opinion of it yet uh I will share the uh, bits of the story with you and let you make up your mind about it if it's scary if you think it's gonna be around for long if this is a new trend if they're gonna be hit with a lot of fraud or if this is you know something that legitimate people are looking for we'll see uh, but the not so good news for today's episode, and you've probably guessed it by now if you listened to my episode on Tuesday about parenting as a fraud fighter, and that news is that my daughter Jordan is not my guest on today's episode. So we did record a really good conversation for a little over an hour, and it was so good. And I'm not just saying that because she said that, you know, she once at least thought that my job was really cool and said that she admired me and a lot of other really kind things. In addition to talking about her perspective, which some things really surprised me about, you know, how I handled internet safety and some of the things she's experienced as she went through her teen years with the internet that I think may be helpful for those of you who have reached out or those that haven't who are starting to get to that place where you're trying to figure out how do you navigate knowing about some of the darkest things that can happen on the internet and not wanting them to happen to your kid, but also knowing that there's some really good things about the internet and it helps them explore the world. And trying to balance that can be really hard when you know what a lot of us know or you know about what we know. So it was so good. And I was 
prepared to have it be this uh today's episode had it done you know in time for my editors i mean a little a day later than i wanted to but it was good and then i went to listen back to it for just a minute and realized that i recorded an hour and 11 minutes of dead air because uh i got a new microphone fairly recently and it's different uh the mute button is hidden underneath and it's just a touch button my old microphone i would know when it was on mute and i would also know when i pressed the button because it was hard to miss so i think what happened you know because if you're a fraud fighter it, you can't help but always try to think of root cause of everything like it'll drive you crazy until you do even if it's little things like why the heck was my microphone muted i think when i moved to the mic stand uh for both of us to talk into it i must have accidentally pressed the button and i've never had that happen before so i didn't know to check it <sighs> so we were devastated um i just felt so bad and then um gee we we're gonna try to do it this morning but she got called into work early and honestly, I just, I felt really bad asking her to do it again right away. So she promises that she will do it again soon. She really enjoyed it and was looking forward to having that out in the world. So it's coming. I'm a little bummed it's not, those episodes won't be right back to back, but life happens, especially when our kids are involved. So whether you're a parent or not, I hope you can understand that, but Fraudology's show still needs to go on. And in a way, I still would have preferred to have that episode, but in a way, when I started uh, collecting news stories for this week, I was like, okay, maybe this is what was meant to be because they're just different and fun. And sometimes we need that, especially in the summer, but also in fraud, right? Like I said, we do often have to deal with the worst of the internet in different ways, whether it's financial fraud or trust and safety, or whether you have to support customers uh, or clients uh, who are victims of scams. It can be a dark world. So, you know, I don't know. I don't mean to hype it up too much. It's not like they're the funniest things ever, but they are a little different and funnier than usual. So without further ado, I will start with the first one, which I think we can file in the category of random, but I also thought that it would be a very good story to uh, bring back a segment that I uh, came up with for the previous podcast I had with a co-host. It feels like a million years ago. It really was like four or five years ago, um, which is a million years in podcast years, right? And that is the what the fraud segment. And it's, you know, WTF, right? But Obviously, like of course it always has, the F stands for fraud. And this is definitely a what the fraud moment. So I'm going to read the blurb that Frank wrote about it. And then I actually got um, a comment from one of the uh, founders of About Fraud via text message tonight that I wanted to share. Uh, it was like, do you have any comment on the record? I was acting like a journalist, but I think he knew I was just being, you know. But I did think that it would be good, you know, to... to find out what he thought, right? Was this a coincidence or not? So like I said, the headline is, did this fraudster look up bot? Uh, so the fraudster is called look up bot. Just copy about fraud's tagline. So Frank writes, are fraudsters watching fraud fighters every move? A lookup bot that helps fraudsters look up social security numbers, phone numbers, driver's licenses, and other PII is advertising itself as created by fraudsters for fraudsters. Does that sound familiar? If it does, it's because you probably have heard of About Fraud, which I've had PJ, uh, you know, one of the co-founders of About Fraud on the podcast in the past. And 
if you're not familiar with the website, it's a great resource uh, all about fraud, has different pages on it to find conferences and educational content. And they were so kind to list me in the consulting section as well as the podcast section. And they actually just added the Fraudology benchmarking report to their benchmarking resources. So of course, I appreciate that we all try to support each other um, because that's the spirit of collaboration, as we should. And we all you know, want to provide support to the industry in different ways and different parts of the industry. But it's really nice to be able to reach out to each other from time to time for different things. So I'm going to go back. So if it does, it pro- it's probably because you've heard of about fraud. And their tagline is, for fraud fighters by fraud fighters. And then Frank created this graphic with about fraud's logo. And underneath it says, you know, for fraud fighters by fraud fighters. And then look up robots, um, I guess their logo. I don't know. It has like a cyborg guy with a, I don't know if that's a flashlight or uh, a magnifying glass. I guess I was looking at it really closely. I zoomed in. Um, but their tagline underneath is by fraudsters for fraudsters. Uh, the service is pretty scary, Frank says, and it works very fast. And to top it off, it's a bot that works right within Telegram. I tested it and it took less than 10 seconds. It reminds me of these TLO lookups and all these fraudsters and scammers are selling. So you pay Bitcoin and then you click for what you want to search for. And some of the categories, it's almost like Google or something, but for fraud, they have, it's probably a magnifying glass that the cyborg has because now I see that the little icon next to each thing you can search for is a magnifying glass. Not that you guys care. I'm just, you know, putting two and two together on the spot here. So some of the things that you can look up info for, and again, since you're paying Bitcoin, you will get those back. Is social security number, driver's license, date of birth. You know, assuming that you have someone's name or just any little bit of information, which, you know, I don't know. I don't know why my brain went to, you know, if somebody was bullied in high school or something like that. And, you know, they have their bully's name and they want to take over their their identity um, or create a synthetic based on that. You know, they could put in their high school bully's name and whatever information they have and find the social security number for that or their driver's license or their date of birth. You can also do a reverse SSN. So you can put in the social security number and find out about the person. Um, there's different you know, credit services. You can find out the uh, vehicle identification number, their VIN for their car, what kind of car it is, their phone, address, email, a business report, their professional license. You can also find out their height, weight, eye color and hair color and then there's different combinations of things so yeah that's terrifying it's like you know a google bot basically for uh for fraudsters and i find it interesting that they call themselves fraudsters so that's the story it's one thing for us to call ourselves fraud fighters but i didn't really i don't think that many fraudsters call themselves fraudsters right they might call themselves a scammer or something like that i just haven't ever heard it unless it's a former fraudster but that's because they're marketing themselves to fraud fighters and we call them fraudsters right i don't know at least that's in my mind i could be totally wrong and we know that you know fraudsters keep tabs on us um, as much as they can or want to or think that they have to you know sometimes they have so many different ways of doing things they don't really feel like they have to know what's going on on our side because there are so many vulnerabilities and so many different business models and all of that that a lot of times they don't need to know what we know or what we're doing uh, because they can find vulnerabilities without it. But I also know that just like we like to learn about what they are doing and what tools they have and you know what their strategies are and their motives and everything else, they like to know those things too. I know that they'll read white papers. I've seen some of them posted in different you know criminal forums and things like that. I've seen a few of my articles posted in criminal forums on the dark web several years ago, which was odd. But you know, I, at the same time, um, 
I don't think that that's a reason to not share information. I mean, obviously being selective and understanding that this, for example, is a public platform. There's a lot of things that I hold back, especially about specific companies or specific issues or specific vulnerabilities. You notice that we often talk about the strategy side, not as much, hey, this is what can be done and this is what works here or there. So while it may seem that we share a lot on here, we're strategic about it, right? And I think most people are. But to think that they, you know, aren't aware of about fraud may be you know, not giving them enough credit, but maybe saying that they completely stole the tagline was also giving them too much credit. I don't know. So I texted PJ tonight. And the only reason why I didn't ask Ronald, who is the other co-founder, is because he's in Europe and uh, I'm pretty sure he was asleep. Although he is a night owl, so I don't know, maybe I should have tried. But so I asked PJ um, and I said, is imitation the best form of flattery? Or do you think it was a coincidence? Are they trolling while frauding? Like, which one do you think it is? He said, yeah, so odd. But I mean, it's whatever. Um, he said, probably not a coincidence. Fraudsters spend too much time stealing stuff to develop their brand building chops. And I thought that was funny. And I was like, ha, is that quotable? And he said, sure. And then he wrote a little bit of a longer thoughtful response that I thought was really good and worth reading. So in all honesty, it's not super surprising when it comes down to it. We know fraudsters watch the educational information fraud fighters put out there, but educating our communities, coworkers, friends, and families produces positives that far outweigh the negatives of bad actors listening in. Whether it's blogs they stalk or podcasts they listen in on or taglines they steal, they'll never live fulfilling lives. They'll steal money and ideas and even branding, but they'll go to bed with just a bunch of stolen shit. And we'll go to bed satisfied with the work we do and the purpose we serve. I'll take the latter all day. A freaking men, PJ, I'm here with you. You know, in the beginning when my former co-host and I thought about doing a podcast, I was really nervous about that because it's one thing to write an article, but it's another to have a conversation and, you know, you can't limit as much as you share, you know, in an article, you also can't edit it down as much and control it as much. And, um you know, because he was a former fraudster, he was like, you're flattering yourself. Most fraudsters don't need that information. They actually probably know more about some of the companies you work with than you do. And I know he's right. And um, especially with this newer generation of fraudsters that have come up in the last few years and Telegram and all the technology that's at their fingertips and, you know, all the GPT and, you know, the generative AI, they don't really need to hear from us, but they do. Um, I've been asked several times, I, I answered it once on another episode, I think it's one of the ask recently things, you know, if I think that one of the reasons why fraudology is in the top 5% of all podcasts by number of listeners, which I still can't always believe. I mean, that's like all podcasts, right? Now, part of it, because again, when you're a fraud fighter, you don't just take the data at face value you want to know underneath. Part of that is the way that they calculate the numbers, but it's still a big deal. And it's a metric that every podcast uses. So as long as we're all using the same metrics, it's apples to apples. And I really don't think that it's listened to by very many. And here's why. Yes, several hundred, if not, you know, a few thousand here and there, listen to the podcast. But if it was being circulated around fraud forums, that number would skyrocket very quickly. Like overnight, it wouldn't be gradual like, uh, you know, our growth has been. And really, I think because it's long form, because we're mostly talking to people assuming that they do this job and already have that foundational knowledge. I don't think there's a lot that can be pieced together. We're also super careful about whenever there's a merchant on. They often don't talk about their company specifically. Sometimes because they can't. Other times because they, you know, whatever leverage they have, what little leverage they have, they need to keep it, right? So they're not going to come on and talk about their biggest vulnerability on the podcast, nor would I want them to. But because we're all trying to figure out the prevention side, there's a lot of things on the strategy side. 
a lot of things of, hey, you know, we tried this and it worked. Or, you know, this is my philosophy, like with Vineet, right? She has found that by having approvals as her North Star, it has helped clear up everything else. Well, obviously balancing fraud, right? So anyway, I don't know. I just figured I'd answer that as we were talking about it. That doesn't mean that I don't think that anyone has ever listened in who is nefarious. That's I'm sure that that has, they're probably bored or were like, oh, I have to listen to this whole hour to find like one thing that might be interesting to me, whatever. Whereas those of us on the fraud fire side are like, oh, the hour's up already. I just wanted to hear somebody else nerd out because a lot of times, you know, you're the only one in your company that cares about this. So, you know, I think, I think I have this audience down and I think that, you know, for the most part now, maybe I'm too cocky and maybe I'm naive. I don't know. But uh, based on, you know, the conversations that I have with people, my numbers are pretty consistent with what I would expect with the people I know. So, you know, with a fair amount, I always get surprised, especially when I go to conferences, how many more people listen than I realize, or just people that I haven't met before. But I've yet to, you know, ever see anyone post a link to my podcast on any fraud forums, not that I'm in them all the time, but a lot of you guys are. And I know several people that are often, you know, scrolling around and, um, fraudster forums, whether it's in Telegram or Discord or, you know, still Tor browser and whatever that is, you know, the the actual dark web. Um, I feel like I always do quotation marks, but you guys don't see it. So I don't know why I'm doing air quotation marks whenever I say dark web, but the criminal underground or whatever we want to call it. So um, not yet. Anyways, I feel like, you know, somebody would send it to me if that had happened, but you know, who knows, right? I'm not going to let it me lose sleep. Now, if there's suddenly an episode that you know, is listened to through the charts, I might get a little bit, you know, very out of the norm and out of the pattern. I might get a little bit nervous, but for now, I think we're fine. And uh, also, that that's also why we're still, you know, cautious and conscious about what is talked about on this platform. Uh, now, you know, the merchant collaboration calls I host, on the other hand, <laughs> those are a lot less um, edited because they're never recorded. So, um, you know, and it's important for practitioners to be able to talk to each other about the things that they don't feel like they can talk to anyone else. Yes, even sometimes their current vendor. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So 
If you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Alrighty, well, let's move to the second one. This is more scary and a downer. The headline is Chinese scammers are hiring domain experts to develop new flawless scams. This was another great story that was featured in Frank on Fraud or Frank McKenna's Frank on Fraud newsletter that he's been sending out every Tuesday morning. I highly recommend subscribing to it. I know he puts a great amount of work into it. It takes several hours over the weekend. And Frank doesn't have sponsors or you get paid for any of the time he puts into these things. So I think we definitely all need to, you know, support his work and be appreciative because it truly is coming from a good place. And it certainly helps me. I'm whether I'm using them for fraud news on the podcast or not, I really enjoy being able to look at the five or six or seven stories that he found interesting for the week. I know that my team has wanted to add a newsletter to our content very soon. I think that'll come out in 2024 at the latest, like in January. And some of it will be related to the podcast, but others will be, you know, uh, topical stories and articles and things like that. So not to compete with Frank by any means. It'd just be a collection of the stories that I find interesting and think you guys would find out interesting too. So this one, while Frank wrote about it, I'm actually going to read the original article on it which came from the Times of India. And that headline is actually domain experts help Chinese scammers on creative frauds. So this article starts out as the Chinese masterminds behind the mega 712 crore investment scam busted by Hyderabad police recently. And I don't know exactly what that investment scam is, but I would assume it is a variation of pig butchering or something similar to that since it talks about investments. Uh, have a dedicated team of experts who develop creative scams to dupe gullible victims. Their exclusive job is to come up with fresh concepts slash modus operandi, MO, that are in line with the changing times, say cybercrime sleuths probing the case. We know that a lot of these scams that are targeting consumers directly over the last couple of years, whether they're investment scams or impersonation scams, are all, I shouldn't say all, but the majority of them are coming out of the APAC region for various reasons, whether it's because uh, COVID restrictions have really paused their economy or the human trafficking that's going through there that we've talked about in the past um, with Frank McKenna, with Ian Mitchell and others. Um, it's really sad. It's sad on both ends, right? There's usually the person who's perpetrating it is also a victim, but doesn't make it right. And it's funding so much organized crime in that region that it's, uh, as Frank McKenna said on the episode where we talked about our New Year's resolutions, but in July to kind of check in on them, or June actually, to check in on them, he was talking about how instead of having narco states, there might be a day not that far away that we may have cybercrime states because some of these criminals will have so much money that they can literally own the government and have them in their pocket. I hope that that's science fiction and that never comes true, but we're just with how much explosive scams in all directions and different types of fraud online have happened in the last few years, I, I could see it happening. And that is distressing, but it's important for us to know. And I know that, you know, just like fraudsters like to learn from us, we like to learn from them. It's important to know what they're doing on their side to uh, get better or to be more creative. 
So this article goes on to say, during the investigation, we found that it's this team that is entrusted with the responsibility of creating advertisements, text messages to be sent through SMS, Telegram, WhatsApp, and designing web pages that are attractive enough to lure victims and convince them that it's offering a genuine investment proposal, said a source from Hyderabad police familiar with the case. I hope I'm saying that correct the region in India. If I'm not, I'm really sorry. No, this is a really interesting um, help wanted uh, flyer that they included in this article. And I'm going to be obviously including a link to the article in the show notes. So there's a graphic in the middle of this article. I thought at first it was like a help wanted sign, but it's more like a summary of this article. So um, that headline says coordinated effort needed. And then a bullet point says group of developers in quotation marks responsible to devise new ways to lure and scam people, say cybercrime officials. They came up with ideas like online gaming, crypto trading deals, drugs and parcel scams in the past three years to dupe people. Chinese bosses entrust key Indian associates to hunt for prospective victims. So I guess I didn't no, maybe this night of me, I'm sure if several of you did, that um, while the Chinese are often, you know, designing these scams and behind it, they're, you know, obviously recruiting people from India as well to help them with that. I know that they're doing it in other areas of, you know, the APAC region and, you know, India is in Asia. It's just a little bit more West or yeah, a little more West than you might think when first thinking about, you know, these type of scams. So that was surprising to me, but that explains why. This police department is investigating it and why it's in the Times of India. Uh, So then it goes on to say, Indian partners responsible for starting shell companies to siphon money out of the country. Money from India reaching Chinese fraudsters through different South Asian countries. Then they say victims must file complaints. Cops say most victims won't approach them. Call for coordinated effort between different central agencies to unravel extent of these scamming operations. So, you know, there's a call for that from at least the detectives. So a little bit more in the bulk of the article, because I think this is interesting to kind of understand how it works. The web pages that they create open only after a victim clicks on a link shared by the accused. In the last three years, this team of Chinese developers has come up with a host of ideas, online gaming, investment offers with a promise of high returns, crypto trading deals, task-based investment plans, extortion in the name of seizing parcels with drugs, among several others. These Chinese con men explain the MO to their key Indian associates, who then go hunting for prospective victims. The Indian partners also have the responsibility of starting shell companies through which the money is siphoned. In 2021, when security agencies unearthed the role of Chinese nationals in several frauds and went all guns blazing after Indian associates, the latter went underground for a while. Later, they reconnected with their foreign employees and started floating companies again, this time with higher payments. So far... I'm afraid I'm going to say this name again, Uh, This another police department, have nabbed more than 10 Chinese nationals for their role in online gambling, harassing Indians through instant loan apps, and other such frauds. Then they go and talk about the money trail. Investigation reveals that the transfer of hundreds of victims' money from India is reaching Chinese fraudsters through different South Asian countries, where the associates of these accused reside. The fraudsters apparently employ people across India so that they can provide them with bank accounts, a key factor in getting victims' money at a designated place, before it is moved out of the country and can reach foreign locations. It has been found that many victims are actually not approaching the police due to various factors. We feel that the cases we've cracked so far is only the tip of the iceberg and we require coordinated effort of different central agencies to get to the bottom of it, since the scam has cross-border ramifications, said a source from the Hyderabad police. 
The state police alone cannot unravel it due to its limitations, the source said. And that is the article. I found that article really fascinating. I hope you do too. I mean, it doesn't surprise us, right? But it kind of brings fraud as a service to a whole new level. Usually when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about Telegram and how, you know, you can hire out different parts of the scam and and different parts of different crimes. Uh, but this really shows what we've already known but it's good to have validation. And, you know, sometimes I can question myself, even though I have incredible sources. But sometimes I feel like I sound like a crazy person saying there are these, you know, fake organizations that run just like businesses and people have, you know, different levels and different jobs and they all work together in a coordinated effort for on the crime side. But this really shows that that's true. And especially over the last few years, we know that they've had more money to invest in infrastructure of fraud scams. You know, it's been post-COVID, like either because of unemployment fraud or PPP in the U.S. or other types of, you know, scams and COVID uh, government relief in other countries. Or just, you know, these consumer targeted scams are bringing in so much money. It's really, really staggering. And uh, I'll be having at least one if not two or three guests talking about these types of scams soon on the podcast. And uh, they've been sounding this alarm for quite some time, and it feels like it just keeps becoming a bigger and bigger problem. But because of them sounding the alarm, a lot fewer people have become victims to this too. So, and I think there's a lot more progress happening uh, in different areas to try to stop them. But it's just very frustrating, but also enlightening as well. Uh, the next story I actually heard uh, on the podcast Smashing Security. It's uh, one that I really enjoy listening to. I've been listening to it since I think before I even had a first podcast actually. Uh, and they usually pick a couple of stories from the news every week and usually they're pretty funny and then they talk about them for a while as a group and I really enjoy them. Uh, I think I shared this on uh, the interview that Lucas, my podcast producer, did of me on episode 200, but uh, I'd really enjoy being one of their guest hosts sometime. I don't know. Hopefully that's not pandering too much, but I think that that would be a lot of fun. And they don't always have the fraud aspect. Like they'll talk about fraud and scams, but uh, the hosts and usually a lot of their guest hosts are more on the cyber side. So I think that that could be, you know, helpful and, and interesting to their listeners. But anyway, I'm not plugging for that now. I was just saying I'm going to give them credit where credit's due. And the second part of it, I actually found on accident because I went to click on the link of what I thought was the original story about this incident. And it was actually the doctor's website. And I saw this notice and I was like, huh, OK. But the uh, the article I found um, says uh, the title is more plastic surgery patients have their nude photos and information leaked. So uh, this um, is a follow up article to one from a week or two ago. But it says an unknown party or parties who created a leak site with nude photos and medical records of a well-known plastic surgeon's patients have uploaded more of his patients' photos and records. What was in their third update to the leak site since June 5th, those responsible wrote that they have changed their strategy. Before publishing any more of Dr. Gary Modekai, I think that's how you say his last name, Dr. Gary Modekai's patients' data, the patients will report be given a chance to pay $2,500 each to get their data deleted and not made public. Now that is a new type of extortion scam. You know, we've heard of ransomware where they're locking down your files and you have to pay them to get access to them. But in this case, they copied their whole database and are now saying, hey, pay us or else we're going to you know, leak them like they already have leaked several. And I mean, from what I understand, before and after plastic surgery pictures aren't that great. Like, there's swelling and bruises and all kinds of stuff, but apparently there's a market for it, or else they wouldn't have, you know, tried to get it. 
And I'm sure that some of them are celebrities, right? Like if this guy is a doctor in Beverly Hills in California, that was probably why he was targeted, but I don't know for sure. They also note that for the price of closing the website altogether and deleting all the data is $800,000, which they claim is four to five months of Gary's clinic work, in quotation marks. In an email to Data Breaches, which is the website that's publishing this article, uh, they claim that they did not and do not lock Target's systems. The price is for deleting data that they exfiltrated. In that email, they also denied being affiliated with ALF-V or ALF-5, who also hit plastic surgery groups and other ransomware groups. They claim that they're an independent group. They also reiterated a claim that they had made in a previous email that the 3,461 patients reported do not include patients who had virtual consults with the doctor, so only in person because pictures. Uh, Data Breaches has uh, reached out to ask the doctor if his report to HHS, so about the breach, um, did include virtual consult patients, but no reply was immediately available. Other details they provided included in their response to the site's inquiry about access. I wanted to read this part. They would not disclose initial access details, but they did disclose something about lateral movement. It was as easy as it can be, they wrote. The clinic stored plain text passwords in a file on their server, and anybody on their network had an access to this file with passwords inside. Once they got the file with passwords, then they were able to access this doctor's database and download all of them. One other question that data breaches posed to them concerned the very personal NSFW sexually explicit videos involving Dr. Moyaki and some other videos involving his brother in private moments with his girlfriend. Sorry guys, I did not read that ahead of time. <laughs> I thought we were still talking about plastic surgery pictures. When asked, those responsible for the leak site claimed that Dr. Modokai stored the explicit videos of himself on his work PC and stored the private and sensitive videos of his brother on his OneDrive. Okay. Whether Dr. Modokai had his brother's consent to have or store those videos is unknown to, to Data Breaches, the website of this story, and the brother's lawyer had not responded to inquiries. Data Breaches has followed up by asking those responsible for the leak site whether the brother has contacted them at all to request that they remove the videos of him. Um, these three leak sites with nude photos and medical records of plastic surgery patients continue to pose a serious risk to patient privacy, as well as the risk of fraud or further blackmail attempts. Did these three surgery practices uh, called Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery, Dr. Gary Modokai, and the Hankins and Son Plastic Surgery adhere to the HIPAA security rule and how they protected patient data. Hopefully, Health and Human Services um, will investigate all of these incidents. So yeah, that story's a little bit more about, you know, cybersecurity and hacking than I usually cover. But here's the thing that really caught my interest. So when I first clicked on the first link that they had in the show notes for last week's uh, episode of Smashing Security, it was actually a link to this doctor's website. And the first thing that pops up is a pop-up. So, you know, his... Uh, home screen is kind of grayed out and then there's this big pop-up that comes up and it says beware of impersonators we never use whatsapp to contact you or request payment if someone claiming to be dr Modokai or our staff contacts you through these channels do not click the message delete the chat and block them immediately my you know intuition tells me that they're that i'm sure that these two things are related we know that criminals aren't dumb right when that money is their motivation and their reason for doing things they can be very enterprising why just, you know, why just have this information and hold it hostage and extort it for money? Why not also either sell the client database to another fraud group or do it yourself? And they're 
you know, who knows if they're calling as the doctor's office to say, you know, to let them know about the breach and say they need to pay them, you know, to erase it or if this is a whole other scam, right? Hey, you know, you had surgery on da da da, you have an outstanding balance of X, you need to pay it now or else, you know, I don't know what the equivalent of a repo man is when it comes to plastic surgery, um, but I'm sure there's some kind of a threat, some kind of a, you know, timeline or short time frame on there. But um, I also thought, though, I'm going to give this doctor some props, definitely not on how they uh, store their data. If what the hackers claim and how easy it was to get this is true and, you know, I've known of enough incidents of doctor's offices and similar small businesses that, you know, they're using the default password to the POS system that uh, all chiropractors use or all dentists use. And if a hacker stumbles on this, they're just going to go to every single dentist that uses that, you know, software or has it connected to their website and try to get in with the default password things like that. So, and the whole, you know, I think that everyone listening to this knows that you should never store a plain text document with passwords, especially if you label it passwords, but even if you don't, but um, a lot of businesses just don't think about these things. A lot of smaller businesses don't think about these things until they have to. Um, but I really think this should become best practice. And uh, I sent a text to Frank McKenna about it today, thinking that it was an interesting, you know, it's an interesting story, I think, because first of all, I mean, just the thought of having like pre and post surgery pictures of any kind leaked would be um, horrifying, but also just, it's just really interesting. So um, I said, number one, it's sad that celebrity plastic surgeons are being impersonated. And then I said, is any profession considered sacred or untouchable by scammers these days? I was just being silly. Number two, I wonder if this is related to the data breach. It probably is. Since the hackers didn't just obtain pics, but patient PII. So they could be trying to run multiple scams to make as much money as possible. Or if it's just a coincidence and this guy is a big target for fraud. He might have a big YouTube channel. He might have, I don't know, a reality show. I have no idea. I've never heard of the guy. That doesn't mean that he's not popular. And often when anyone becomes popular in the news or, you know, reality TV or anything like that, they can become a target. And then I said, I think that this kind of pop-up should become a best practice slash standard for all companies. It's similar to what I recommended to companies that were being impersonated for employment scams. One reason why real businesses are impersonated is because of their validity. Potential victims will Google the business and see it's legit. If they had all of these warnings, whether they knew about an active scam impersonating their own business or not, several scams could be averted and eventually scammers would have to change their tactics. And then I said, so of course they'd have to put out an ad for, you know, that domain expertise. You know, a little callback to the last uh, story there. So in summary, a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills, actually three of them were targeted for breaches, photos, and personal identifiable information for 3,400 and did I say 16, something like that. Over 3,400 patients were obtained. They uh, posted some of the photos and everything else. And now they realized, oh, people will probably pay to have them not be posted. So now they're charging, you know, they're, or they're giving the remaining uh, victims a chance to pay up to not have their photos on there and I guess they have to trust that that's going to be the case. But then it seems if you look at this website for, you know, the actual surgeon's business, that clearly they've been made aware that they're impersonators, uh, probably contacting their patients via WhatsApp to contact them or request payment. So I think this would be a great thing for businesses to do, whether they've heard of any of this happening or not. Just, hey, we will never contact you via anything. You know, if we do call you, you can call us back on our business line. Something like that. I know when I talked about employment scams a few months ago, I went into more depth about it. Like, if, especially if you know that your company is being impersonated for employment and job scams. So 
That's one resource. All right. And the last story is this no KYC visa, uh, no KYC visa card. It's really odd to me that a company in a startup is marketing that they have no know your customer standards, no bank security act, no AML, uh, basically that you can get a anonymous credit card. I mean, we already had, there already are virtual cards and there's already prepaid cards. So when I first saw this, I thought, okay, it's just a new virtual card or prepaid card that's trying a new marketing strategy. Not that it was okay, but I wasn't sure if they were doing anything wrong or different. But I subscribed to Jason um, McCullough's I hope I'm saying his last name right too. Fintech Business Weekly Substack. And he always has really good information and deep dives into it. Uh, it's pretty easy, especially when you know payments, to be able, you know, game recognizes game, right? So you can tell he knows the right questions to ask, the right things to look into, the right things to dig in. So I'm going to read parts of this article. Um, the name of the card is called Lasso, L-A-S-O. And the title of the article is Lasso Leverages Stripe and Celtic Bank to Offer Crypto Users a No KYC Visa Card. Um, he talks about, you know, how since the launch of Bitcoin more than a decade ago, crypto platforms and services have matured substantially, but they often have a big major challenge of like how to spend any of those crypto funds um, on real world goods and services. Back in 2013 and 14, I uh, worked with and talked with a lot of, well, I mean, there, were, there weren't a lot of them, but the handful of companies that came out first in um, press releases for accepting Bitcoin. And it was a massive fail. I could go into that in detail about what happened and what they had to deal with, if that would be interesting to anyone. Um, but that's another other side step. I mean, it's been 10 years, so I don't think I'm sharing anything that's not or sharing anything that shouldn't be. And um, it explains why the world that a lot of Bitcoin enthusiasts at first envisioned, where you could buy you know, everything in real world with Bitcoin or other types of coins um, never really happened. I mean, there's there's a lot more advancements for usage and investments and other things like that in obviously legitimate crypto investments and legitimate crypto platforms and, you know, especially stablecoin, that's super popular. So anyway, interacting with the traditional financial system or TradFi as they call it, typically means complying with regulations that govern those institutions like BSA, the Bank Secrecy Act, AML, anti-money laundering, and KYC, know your customer requirements. Privacy-focused crypto firms have pushed, in some cases broken, the boundaries of what's permissible. The latest example, Lasso, which leverages Celtic Bank via Stripe issuing, I didn't even realize that Stripe had an issuing arm, but it doesn't surprise me, promises users a no KYC visa card. This is like their pitch. This is their marketing. Really kind of makes you wonder who's going to be using it. Probably the people who don't want to be tracked. Probably the people that should be tracked, whether their money is coming from scams and fraud and illegitimate sources or, you know, drug money or from sanctioned countries or sanctioned people. Whenever you have a loophole like this, they'll all, you know, like ants on a picnic, just go straight for it. Especially when a bank is bragging about no KYC. New users know, well, they're not going to start now because that's what they advertise. So in one of the ads or on their website, it says immediate stablecoin spending. Use your stablecoins like cash. And then the bullet points say like any regular visa. Use your card anywhere Visa debit cards are accepted at 40 million plus merchants worldwide. No KYC. Get your card without submitting any identifying information. So of course, only legitimate customers are going to sign up for that, right? Pay with peace of mind. Industry-leading security features include, and I think this is fascinating, charge limits, pin change, card freezing, and more. They do not say fraud guarantee. They do not say chargeback guarantee. That is because if it's an anonymous card, 
it's unregistered, meaning chargebacks can't happen. So the only one good thing for merchants on this card is that you don't have to worry about it. However, because of other details further down in this article, I think you're probably going to cancel most of them anyway. At least I think so. I do not know the bin now, but I'm sure that can be looked up. Um, they do say that um, no gas fees, but they say they there aren't additional gas fees for spending or refunds. Well, there's an asterisk on that. And um, actually, so their gas fees is what, <laughs> what they're calling. At first, I was like, oh, so they don't charge them interest when they pump their gas. Is that how old I am now? Um, actually, I've been reminded of how old I am way too many times this week, but that's a whole other story. Um, but maybe gas fees is like a term you guys know. I don't know it, but um, could be a crypto thing. But it's the fee that they deduct every time somebody deposits money. So this is essentially like a debit card, but you're depositing stable coins. Whether it's, um, say I wrote myself a key because Jason knows that most of his readers know these things, um, but I just, you know, in case you guys don't, and I didn't know what one of these was. So, you know, you're not the only one, but um, the coins that they, uh, that you can transfer into this lasso card include um, USDC, which is the USD coin. It's an Ethereum-based stable coin, and the value is always one-to-one -one with the US dollar. It's also USDT, which is Tether. It's the largest stable coin by market cap. Uh, their transactions also occur on Ethereum's blockchain. And then also DAI, which is a stable coin based on USD, also on Ethereum, uh, Ethereum's blockchain. Um, the value to the USD isn't exactly one-to-one, -one, but it's, um, let's see, I'm trying to do the math here, 10 thousandths of a penny off. So it's like 0.999663 is the rate to dollars. But as you guys know, I mean, we all watched Office Space, right? A tenth or a hundredth or a thousandth of a penny can add up really fast. My references today, sorry, it's... <laughs> It's still been a long week and I am still trying to catch up on sleep. I was more tired the other night when I recorded Tuesday's episode, but hopefully you guys find, you know, the side comments and the tangents uh, very, you know, at least entertaining or you can roll your eyes at me. That's fine too. So um, the current offering is a virtual card. So right now it's just working as a virtual card, but they're promising a physical card to all users who achieve more than $10,000 in lifetime deposits. And if more money is deposited, you can request a completely personalized card. So they don't have, what, what I read from this is they do not have physical cards now. They have posted a couple pictures in their Telegram group of what it might look like. And it has like some popular crypto phrases or acronyms on the cards. I don't know. But there's no terms of service, no cardholder agreement, and no disclosures whatsoever during the signup process or afterwards. So yeah, Lasso converts the stable coins to fiat US dollars and immediately issues a virtual card for the amount. Less 6.8% fee to cover Ethereum gas costs of converting to dollars and a margin for Lasso itself. So if you have a lot of stable coins, wouldn't it just make more sense to convert it back into USD? Put it on, you know, or you know, you put it on your credit card and then pay your credit card, you know, convert your stable coins to USD if you have to, like I don't know. These are all questions. I mean, I'm probably introducing logic into it, or maybe it's just because I'm not a Bitcoin enthusiast. But on the back end, it seems that users are sending their stablecoins to Lasso's wallet, which Lasso then converts into fiat USD and transfers to Stripe issuing slash Celtic Bank via traditional ACH rails. At that point, I was like, how come Stripe issuing and Celtic Bank isn't requiring Lasso 
to explain the source of funding or where those funding sources are coming from, they're going through traditional ACH rails. Because Stripe issuing and their sponsor bank, Celtic Bank, are going to have to account for that themselves. So this next uh, paragraph was fascinating to me. The latency between converting stable coins to dollars and those funds clearing at Celtic seems to have been a significant pain point with the Lasso team requesting via its Telegram channel for users not to make large purchases due to a potential shortfall in its account funding the um the issued cards uh, on at least two occasions so this is a post that they put in their telegram group which by the way if your credit card company is communicating to their customers via telegram might be a sign and it might not be a sign that they're shady it might be a sign that we don't really know what they're doing or they're really under resourced um or at least not professional right so what happens if these cards get shut down and you have ten thousand dollars of your stable coin on them then what happens i don't know I just wouldn't trust it if a bank or a card company communicated via Telegram, but that's just me. And that's also because I know way too much about Telegram and what else you can find on there. So they said, due to a large influx of new users, we onboarded seven times more users this month than last month. Probably because you're advertising a no KYC Visa card. Our transfers to the card issuing partner haven't caught up with the new deposits. Essentially, those new deposits are in the ACH pipeline, not yet confirmed. My guess is that they're on reserve or that they're on a deposit delay because all of a sudden all this money came through the through the rails of Stripe's new issuing channel through uh, Celtic Bank and they're putting a little bit of a buffer on those ACH because we know that it can take a few days for ACH reversals to come through. So the company wasn't able to fund the cards because they weren't being funded by the ACH. So this is yet another clue that makes me assume that the people who have uh, founded Lasso Finance or Lasso Card probably don't have a ton of payments or card experience. I feel like a lot of people enter this this area, right? Whether it's payments, acceptance, or fraud, or others. And look at us. Um, I, know, I just always think about the line from Legally Blonde when she's, you know, asked you're going to Harvard for law school. And she says, what? Like, it's hard? I just, that's what I picture people coming from other industries or fresh out of B school hitting you know, this industry because I've been in it for almost 20 years and I still learn something new every day. And that's something I love about it. But there's a lot of complex things and you can't just set something up and, and expect everything to work. Uh, so anyway, then they go on in their in their post to say, if you can avoid making any large purchases with Lasso for the next few days, it will be greatly appreciated. We're genuinely sorry for this. Why can't you just put blocks on it? Like, why can't you say no transactions over X? I don't know. Um, We'll update you when balances are back to normal. Number uh, to avoid this in the future, we will one smooth use new user deposits, and two work with new issuing partners that accept wires and other faster modes of payments. Um, didn't think about the forehand. So Jason in his article goes on to say, resorting to asking users to limit their spending could indicate that Lasso isn't a direct customer of Stripe, but rather is leveraging another Stripe customer to issue cards. That would be my guess too. Or that they have a very small anonymous account that Stripe is, you know, it's not like they went to Stripe and had a partnership, which is the way I read the first article or at least the first headline that I saw. Um, but just like with merchant processing, just because a company uses Stripe to process their credit cards doesn't mean that they have a formal partnership with them. It should mean that they went through the KYC process with Stripe. But if Lasso is using another, you know, an actual client of Stripe and as a middleman between them, that's going to take even longer. Because Jason goes on to say, if Lasso were directly integrated to Stripe, it would be able to be to programmatically handle spend controls via API. And that was my point, right? Why aren't they able to put limits on that? 
if they're you know directly with Stripe. It's a bit unclear without knowing the exact flow of funds, but Lasso's structure may run afoul of state and FinCEN uh, money transmission laws and regulations. Lasso is not registered with FinCEN as a money services business, nor does it indicate that it holds any state-level money transmission licenses. Lasso specifies a $1,000 daily spending limit, which it describes as a limitation set by FinCEN. This seems to be intended to avoid meeting the definition of a money services business, as long as prepaid cards or gift cards or others you know, have a general $1,000 daily spending limit. Usually that's per card. Then they don't have to be set up as a money services business and, and follow even more regulations. But if Lasso can't control large purchases in quotation marks um, and they're running out of money and not able to fund them, then that makes me wonder how they're enforcing the $1,000 daily spending limit. Or if it's just like, we're really asking nicely, can you please do this? We'd really appreciate it, just like they did when they were you know, out of funds. So a couple more things in this article. But the carve-out for prepaid cards that hold less than $1,000 has limitations, including that it does not permit funds to be transmitted internationally. But there don't appear to be any controls enforcing geographic restrictions on who can open a Lasso account or where they can spend. And according to conversations in the company's Telegram channel, a considerable portion, in quotation marks, of its users base is in the European Union. Even at a $1,000 per day limit, users can move significant funds through the platform. So you may not be able to spend more than $1,000 a day um, outside the platform, assuming that they have an actual limit and not just a general guideline or didn't ask nicely, because um, we know how that works out. Um, but users can still transfer money throughout different accounts in the platform without, it looks like, really any tracking because they don't know who anyone is. And as Lasso does, oh, that's exactly what he said. And as Lasso doesn't collect any kind of personal identifier, there isn't any mechanism to prevent users from quickly spinning up numerous MetaMask wallets, which the MetaMask wallet is what funds the Lasso card. Doesn't it feel like it's money laundering just to how to fund the card? But maybe it's not me. I'm not an expert in money laundering or anti-money laundering, I should say. I'm definitely not an expert in money laundering either. <laughs> Uh, and using them to create corresponding Lasso accounts. So they could spin up numerous MetaMask wallets and just create, because you're only allowed one Lasso account per MetaMask wallet. Okay, well, if you don't know who anyone is and you're not collecting anything, are you even collecting device or anything else? Are you limiting device? Probably not. So you can just, you know, easily circumvent the $1,000 daily limit. Because if you have, you know, 10 or 20 or 200 cards on Lasso, even if you spend $1,000 per card, well, you're still, you know, spending a lot more than that. So the exact account structure and applicability to FDIC insurance isn't clear from the user-facing experience. Lasso does not make any claims about the insured status of funds that it holds in U.S. dollars. Did we not learn anything from FTX? And I say we in the global sense because I, <laughs> you know, Thankfully, didn't have any money in that. Um, not that anyone's 401ks have been doing much better lately, but, you know, there's that. Uh, to spend the funds held at Lasso, the company instructs users to enter Lasso's name and address. This is what I wanted to share. If you're an e-commerce company, you're going to want to hear this again. To spend the funds held at Lasso, the company instructs users to enter Lasso's name and address rather than their own in the billing when making a purchase. The address Lasso uses is 340 South Lemon. I'm saying this because it's public and out there and might as well. Can't even imagine how many merchants just put 340 South Lemon in their database to try to look it up. Uh, and it's in Walnut, California. That 
address 340 South Lemon is associated with nearly 4,000 companies and more than 2,000 individuals. I'm not sure where he got that information. I don't know if that was OSINT information or if that's like in private uh, data verification, but that's um, concerning, right? That would look like fraud. But because it is, so um, while the site describes Lasso as a reloadable prepaid debit card, but because this is a prepaid card and unregistered at that, we know, and I've shared this before, though I don't expect everyone to listen to every episode, that it's really best practice in the industry of prepaid cards to always provide an AVS yes match. It doesn't matter what you put in the billing. They're just going to say yes because they want their their customers' orders to be approved. And because a lot of them can't do chargebacks, it doesn't really matter, right? You won't be getting a chargeback, so there's no point in you saying, wait, you guys said AVS yes to a bogus address, and so we said yes. So, and that's a business decision. Some e-coms will say, well, as long as we know which bins we won't receive chargebacks on, we'll pass them all day long. Others will, depending on what they're selling and you know re- any real world uh, consequences and other things like that, they might restrict them more or at least run them through a risk assessment and their transaction risk monitoring system. So then this next part, I think this is where I'll stop. It's a lot of data on this. Um, while the site describes Lasso as a reloadable prepaid debit card, the virtual cards it issues are actually commercial purchasing cards. Issuing cards for consumer use on a commercial bin is a material violation of Visa rules. So the way I understand it is a commercial purchasing card, that's like for businesses. And that's usually um, level two and three data for payments nerds out there. So the fact they don't even have an address... They're not going to enter all the you know, tax information and everything else for you to interchange. But if they're treating a corporate purchasing card like a reloadable prepaid debit card, that's a problem. Oh, actually, I do have the bin. Um, it's public. It is 485-953. I don't think I've ever read a bin out on the podcast before, but those of you who know will know. But yeah, so um, it looks like he went through and actually made a purchase on a merchant account and was able to see um, what uh, level of card and what type and things like that. So that's how he's able to do that. It's really good journalism. Um, like I said, I really enjoy subscribing to this. I will uh, post a link in the show notes to this article. It actually goes on even more to talk about, you know, Reg E and some of the other issues that they may be having. One thing they do say is that the commercial purchasing cards Lasso is using um, Stripe to issue are intended for mid-sized to large enterprises for the purpose of enabling corporate purchases without purchase orders and invoices, not for consumer and household use. So it's basically like they created their own business account with Stripe issuing, and then they're treating all the people that are loading up the cards as, or they're listing them on their issuing account as employees of their company, but yet they don't know who they are. So I guess, you know, the answer, and there's a lot, there's actually quite a bit more to this article, but I think that's more than enough to share today. Um, You can absolutely, and I encourage you to read the rest of it. To all of you that saw that uh, or just heard about now and were concerned, I would imagine that after this article, I mean, this Substack has over 20,000 subscribers. I would assume that some of them uh, work at Visa, so we may not see that for long, but it is a really good example, too, of consumers cannot keep believing that just because there's a company out there that looks legit and they're offering a card that they're going to be able to keep their money. Right? I would be very concerned if I had loaded money on a lasso card. That may not, there might be a situation where Visa would try to give it back. The problem is when you don't know who the person is who owns that card and you shut down all those cards, where does that money go? Who gets to claim it? A lot of questions. All right, guys. Well, this was an even longer than usual um, fraud news episode. Uh, So 
Hope you appreciated the bonus stories there. I wanted to nerd out a little bit on the KYC or the no KYC visa card because it's not every day that I get articles sent to me like, hey, did you see this? Have you learned about this? What do you think? I also want to say I am very aware of the Fed now changes in the U.S. as well as some of the regulations coming up for real-time user content generation. And uh, I am trying to, well, I've been working on reaching out to a couple of people that I know know about these things way more than I do so we can have an in-depth conversation on a future podcast. If you would like to nerd out with me on any of those topics or anything else, and you are a practitioner, you do not work for a solution provider that is providing uh, and selling fraud or payments or compliance products to merchants and banks. If you work for a merchant or a bank or a fintech or a government agency, let me know. Love to have you on. I have some great guests coming up soon, but always love to have more, especially as we get into fall and um, October, November, December. I can't believe it's coming so fast, but I'm already working on a couple of projects to try to get a few retailers ready for peak season. And so I'm starting to already feel like fall is in the air just because I'm so focused on, you know, the sizable growth that they'll have in uh, probably early November uh, all the way through January. All right, you guys, thanks for bearing with me. I am sorry that I cannot fulfill my promise and have uh, my daughter join me on today's episode, but she will join me soon and hopefully it'll be even half as good as the one that we did just wasn't recorded. I just facepalmed for like the 27th time about this. But I will look forward to talking with you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.